Father, we're grateful for this uh, special season where, you know, we, we pause in our culture and <clears throat> commemorate the birth of your son into our world. And we have uh, Christmas uh, behind us. We have New Year's before us. And I just pray, Lord, that at this transitionary time in the calendar, <clears throat> that you would deeply minister to your people those that are tuning in online or listening or watching after the fact or those that are here in the building, uh, I just pray that you would use your word to speak to your people today. And we only you could do this work through the ministry of illumination. And I pray that you would do that through our teachings today in Jesus' name. And God's people said, Amen. Well, good morning, everybody. Happy post-Merry Christmas to you. I'm assuming everybody got enough to eat yesterday. I mean, we don't really have a problem of starving to death, at least not yet. Who knows what the future brings. But um, Let's open our Bibles, if we could, to the book of Revelation, <clears throat> chapter 12, and verse 1. And... As you're going to see today, you guys that came to Sunday school are going to be at a huge advantage (laughs) when it comes to the main service. You're going to be like hearing that saying, yeah, I know all that. I know that. I know that. Everybody else is going to be, you know, panicking because we're going to do something a little different today uh, concerning Christmas. But more on that in the second hour. And here we are completing, and read my lips, we are completing today (laughs) our study on the rapture. Um, Of course, the last president of the United States that said that didn't go so well for him. Remember that? He said, read my lips, no new taxes. And we know how that ended up, and so maybe I shouldn't have used that expression, read my lips. But anyway, all of that being said, we're in this, the topic of the rapture and we're just dealing with some, some subjects that came in at the end in terms of question and answer. And one of the things people asked is, is the church in Revelation 11, the two witnesses? And the basic answer to that question is no, because to read the church into Revelation chapter 11 would violate the literal, grammatical, historical, contextual method of interpretation, which is the method of interpretation that you use anywhere else in the Bible to understand its meaning. It's just when people get to the book of Revelation, they just want to throw it away and pretend like it doesn't exist. So as we were providing the answer to that question, I was in the process of trying to explain why the book of Revelation deserves the exact same method of interpretation that you find in John's Gospel, in the book of Romans, the book of Galatians, the book of Genesis. You're interpreting the book of Revelation the exact same way. It's just in the book of Revelation, it's a bit harder 
because there's only so much symbolism and figurative language in Romans to negotiate with. Uh, but when you get to the book of Revelation, there's a ton of symbolism and figurative language. And because of that intense symbolism, people kind of throw up their hands in the air and say, well, you know, the literal method can't work in the book of Revelation. And I'm trying to explain that, yes, it can work in the book of Revelation. God expects it to be used by his people as they read the book of Revelation. You just need a little bit more sophistication on how to figure out what the symbols are in the book of Revelation and how to interpret the symbols. So one of the things that has to be understood is God gave us the book of Revelation to be understood. Amen? Because when you go back into, let's say, the writings of Martin Luther, who did a lot of good for Christianity, and John Calvin, who also did some good for Christianity, when they got to the book of Revelation, they just said, forget it, you can't understand it. In fact, it was Luther, and I have the quote in my book here. I'm not sure if I have that particular one up here, but it's called Ever Reforming. And there we go. Tom Aaliyah asked, should I put the books out? And I just already knocked them over. And uh, here we go. I know this is not great for the camera, is it? (laughs) It's not great for the camera. But um, I'm just doing a few exercises here. Got to bend and stretch and all that, all that stuff. So just pretend like you didn't see anything there. Um, Luther basically, when he got to the Book of Revelation, just threw his hands in the air and basically acted like it's not even a canonical book. So he didn't even believe in the early um, German translation. Of the Bible, the quote is in the book Ever Reforming. He didn't even believe the book of Revelation should be included in the inspired books of the New Testament. And one of the things that makes John Calvin also a 16th century church reformer um, very, very helpful is Calvin commented extensively on every single verse of the Bible. I mean, you want to talk about a verse-by-verse teacher? Um, I'm not the biggest fan of Calvinism, but I am a fan of some of the things of John Calvin that he emulated in his pastoral ministry. He was verse-by-verse. And consequently, we have Calvin's writings today. Um, You can get those just on Logos software, and you'll see that Calvin basically said something about every single verse of the Bible except the book of Revelation. He would not do a commentary on the book of Revelation and a few other books also, I think 2nd and 3rd John, because he just felt like the book of Revelation is is non-decipherable. So that's why when you go into a church today that has its spiritual DNA in the Reformed movement, um, whether it's a Calvinistic type of church or whether it's a Lutheran church, the pastor there will never hardly say anything about the book of Revelation. 
except give you a lecture on why you can't really understand what it says. And I was talking to someone on an Israel trip that came out of the Reformed tradition, and they said, we've been in this church for generations. You know, my grandparents were in this church, my mom and dad were in this church, and we've finally broken away from it. But this, all this teaching you guys are doing on this Israel trip concerning Israel and the book of Revelation, we've never heard anything about this. And a lot of it comes from this idea that the book of Revelation is so symbolic, you can't understand it, and it's non-decipherable. And they think that because of all of these figures of speech and symbols in the book. And so what they're saying is you can understand John and you can understand Romans, but you can't understand the book of Revelation. And here I am saying the exact opposite. The same method you use anywhere else in the Bible, you can use in the book of Revelation and understand everything that God wants you to understand. So this quote here from Henry Morris is very helpful. He says in his book, The Revelation Record. Now that in and of itself deserves some commentary right then and there because Henry Morris is the father of the young earth creationist movement. He's not known for his understanding of the book of Revelation. He's known for his understanding of the book of Genesis. But you'll notice that Henry Morris did not just write a commentary on Genesis. He also wrote a verse-by-verse commentary on the book of Revelation called the Revelation Record. And his commentary on Revelation is outstanding. Uh, If you have a chance to get that or add that to your collection, I would encourage you to do that. And so Henry Morris was just as aggressive in understanding Revelation as he was understanding the book of Genesis. And maybe I shouldn't go into this, but too late. I'm walking out on the plank, so I might as well keep going, right? The young earth movement of today, young earth creationism, is moving away from the Henry Morris understanding of the book of Revelation. I say that as a fan of the ARC exhibit. You know, we took all of our youth group, and I joined the youth group on that trip, to the ARC exhibit in Kentucky, um, to see, you know, the Young Earth presentation. I mean, I'm, I'm completely on board with their interpretations on Young Earth creationism. But look at the things that that movement today is saying about the book of Revelation. In fact, Ken Ham, and I'm a, I'm a fan of Ken Ham. You know, I, I like Ken Ham. Ken Ham just came out with an article in his Answers magazine on why the book of Genesis is actually more important than the book of Revelation, which to me is like saying a spleen is more important than a lung or something like that. And I'm reading this, and I've noticed that they've been moving this direction for a long time. This is the first time I've really ever said anything about it. But that is a departure from what the Young Earth creationist movement started out being. Henry Morris, the spiritual father of that entire movement, was just as aggressive in the book of Revelation as he was in the book of Genesis. 
And he wrote a wonderful commentary on Revelation, just like he wrote a wonderful commentary on Genesis. And today when you listen to a lot of the young earth apologists, they don't really like it when you start getting into the book of Revelation. I mean, they start getting really nervous about it. Because a lot of them come from the Reformed tradition. And they might be very, very good on Genesis 1 through 11, but they don't have the same mindset, I've noticed. Of course, there's some exceptions to the rule. But they don't have the exact same mindset on the book of Revelation. And what I'm saying is that's a departure. It's, it's a departure from truth that most people probably wouldn't pick up on because we're so happy that they built the ark and we're so happy that they're defending the global flood. And uh, we're so happy that they're defending the young earth position that we don't really notice what they're doing in other parts of the Bible. And they give kind of these excuses like, uh, well, that's not our specialty. Um, This is an area brothers in Christ can disagree on. I'm sure there's a lot of pragmatic issues involved. You know, when you want to do something like worldwide marketing, you obviously don't want to talk about a, a particular interpretation of the book of Revelation that would alienate some of the members of the body of Christ. There's a lot of kind of pragmatic thinking in it. But the truth of the matter is it's a departure. I mean, it's not what Henry Morris, the spiritual father of that entire movement, promoted. So with that being said, you'll notice this quote here in Henry Morris's Revelation Commentary. He says, at the very least, it would be confusing to John's first century readers as well as to later generations for him to write so much about Babylon when he really meant Rome. Uh, Paul was not afraid to speak against Rome in his writings, so why would John be? Or the false church? All the apostles, including John, wrote plainly and scathingly about false teachers and false doctrines in the church and would not hide their teaching by symbols. And then he says it must be stressed that revelation means unveiling, not veiling. In the absence of any statement in the text, to the contrary, therefore, we must assume that the term Babylon applies to the real city of Babylon, which, of course, makes my heart glad because I did write a book, and I'll try not to knock it over, on the whole subject of Babylon. And I've used this particular quote in my book that Babylon means Babylon. But here we're not defending Babylon today. Don't worry, we're not going to Babylon about Babylon But I just want to show you the the Henry Morris attitude towards the book of Revelation. He says right there, and I've got it underlined, it must be stressed that Revelation does not mean, it means unveiling and not veiling. And what he's saying is the exact same literal, grammatical, historical, contextual method of interpretation that you would use to decipher any other part of the Bible. In fact, any other sane piece of literature outside the Bible. You use the exact same method. Henry Moore says, let's use that in the book of Revelation. And he wrote a whole commentary on Revelation defending this. And this is the the type of voice that you're not getting now from the the Young Earth Movement. Um, The other 
really strong voice in that movement was John Whitcomb. In fact, the Genesis flood was written by Whitcomb and Morris. Henry Morris, the scientist, credentialed, fully credentialed, and uh, Whitcomb, the Hebrew scholar, fully credentialed. The both of them came together and they changed the Christian strategy in terms of how to deal with early Genesis by not teaching us to rewrite the Bible to keep up with science. What they did is they said, keep the Bible the way it reads, and let's go out and challenge so-called science. So in the Genesis flood, a seminal book, I mean a, a watershed book around 1960, they defended a literal Genesis 1 through 11. <clears throat> and then they went out and challenged the, the alleged evidence of a missing link. They went and challenged um, the dogmatism that people hold to concerning carbon-14 dating and all of these kinds of things. And they taught the Christian church something that it wasn't employing prior to this book coming out, that you stand on the authority of God's word. And you interpret the findings of the secular world in light of what God has said in his word. And Morris was a big advocate of this, and so was John Whitcomb. And John Whitcomb was just as much an advocate of literal interpretation in the area of prophecy as he was Genesis. So he was just like Henry Morris in that respect. In fact, John Whitcomb... Um, has writings where he is defending the literal interpretation of Ezekiel's temple, which is eschatological future, in Ezekiel 40 through 48. And John Whitcomb, just prior to his death, I was very honored. He had listened to a CD that I had done, and he liked it. It was on the Gog-Magog War. And he actually sent to my house several books that had absolutely nothing to do with Genesis 1 through 11, books that he had written, but they had everything to do with prophecy. So when I hear young earth creationists say, we just don't get into the book of Revelation, that's too controversial, what I'm saying is you're departing from the model given to you by Whitcomb and Morris the co-authors of the Genesis Flood, who took just as aggressive as a stance on creationism as they did on the book of Revelation. And that's what Henry Morris is saying here in this commentary. So the title of the book of Revelation is the Revelation. Uh, Notice Revelation is a singular noun. And that's how you can fish out really fast somebody that doesn't know what they're talking about because they'll call it the book of Revelations. And it's not the book of Revelations. It's a singular noun, meaning when John had this vision, it was a singular vision that he had on the island of Patmos at the end of the first century. It's different than the book of Daniel which contains multiple visions at different times in Daniel's life. That's not how the book of Revelation 
reads. It's a singular vision. So the noun apocalypsis is singular, and apocalypsis means the unveiling, the disclosure. So for people to say the book of Revelation can't be understood the way Luther said it, the way Calvin said it, the way the Roman Catholic Church throughout the Dark Ages was saying it, the way some people in the Young Earth Creationist Movement are saying it, for people to say the book of Revelation can't be understood is to violate the first word. Well, there's an article in front of Revelation, but the second word in the book. See that? God gave us the book of Revelation to be understood. And the question is, well, if it's so easy to understand, what do we do with all of these symbols? Well, what do you do with symbols anywhere else you find them in the Bible? Uh, do you think the book of Revelation is the only book that uses symbols and figures of speech? I mean, I could find them in John's Gospel. It's just more difficult in Revelation because there's more symbols. So when you interpret any part of the Bible, the first thing to understand is there's two kinds of interpretation, plain language and figurative language. Um, The fancy name for plain language is denotative language. The fancy name for figurative language is connotative language. But whenever anybody communicates anything, they want to be understood either in plain words or or they'll say something like this, you know, I'm so hungry I could eat a horse. Let's eat dinner at 6 p.m. I'm so hungry I could eat a horse. So when I say let's eat dinner at 6 p.m., obviously what kind of language am I using there? Plain denotative talk. When I say I'm so hungry I could eat a horse, I mean, I realize I've gained a little weight, maybe more than a little, but I don't think my stomach is big enough to absorb an entire horse. So obviously what I'm using there is a hyperbole, a deliberate exaggeration to communicate the fact that I'm really hungry. But I don't literally mean, gosh, I'm going to fit a whole horse into my stomach. So all language breaks down into those two components. That's what's going on in John. That's what's going on in Romans. That's what's going on in Galatians. And that's what's going on in Revelation. It's just in Revelation it's a little harder because there's a lot more figurative, connotative speech than you find somewhere else. So what you need is some clues necessary to pick up when John the writer wants to be understood figuratively and not literally. And in the book of Revelation, you'll find these six clues. And you could use these elsewhere in the Bible, but you may not need them elsewhere in the Bible because elsewhere in the Bible, they're easy to recognize. But here's some clues that you'll find in the book of Revelation. The first is the word spiritually. When you see the word spiritually used, you know that the writer is about to express a thought not in a literal, plain sense, but in a figurative sense. So notice the book of Revelation, chapter 11, and look, at, look if you will, at verse 8. It says, their dead bodies, those are the two witnesses, 
will lie in the street of the great city, which mystically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. So notice that you've got plain statements here, and then you've got figurative statements here. Bodies is literal. Street is literal. City is literal. Uh, we even know what city it is. It's where their Lord was crucified. So this is obviously taking place in the city streets of Jerusalem. And then the writer comes along and he uses the word mystically because what he's saying now is now that you understand literally what I'm talking about, let me add a spiritual component that's not evident from the naked words of the text. And so the moment he uses the word mystically, you're, you're, you're starting to see this is not just a plain statement, but it also contains a figurative element. And he calls the city mystically called Sodom and Egypt. So Jerusalem, at the time this prophecy is fulfilled, is going to be just like Sodom and Gomorrah, immorality. And it's going to be just like Egypt, a city of great bondage, probably because of pharisaical legalism in the city of Jerusalem in the last days. And I'm only given permission to read those other elements in, depravity and bondage, because of this word mystically. By the way, the exact same thing happens in the book of Galatians. You might just want to jump back there for a second. Galatians 4, and notice if you will, verse 24. He's talking about two women, Sarah and Hagar, who are very two literal historical characters. But then he says in verse 24, Paul the Apostle, this allegorically speaking, see that? For these women are two covenants, one proceeding from Mount Sinai, bearing children who are to be slaves. She is Hagar. Verse 25, now this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, corresponding to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. So Paul is talking about Sarah and Hagar, and now he says, I want to develop a spiritual lesson from these two women, Sarah and Hagar, which we're just getting to in the book of Genesis, Genesis 16 through 22, 16 through 21, basically is dealing with those two women. And Paul is not saying here, I'm going to dehistoricize those two women. What he's saying is they're historical characters, but I want to give you a lesson, spiritually speaking, beyond what the text indicates in its naked language and your clue that Paul is doing this is what word? It's right there in verse 24. It's allegorically. And you're not even given permission in this to come up with your own allegory. Paul will provide the allegory. But the word allegorically is your clue. That's what's going on here in Revelation chapter 11 verse 8. You don't have permission in the book of Revelation or the book of Galatians or anywhere else in the Bible, to move into this method of interpretation unless the text gives you an explicit clue that that's what it's doing. And that's what you look for in the book of Revelation. You look for the word mystically. 
you also look for the word Simeon or sign. A lot more on this later, but John says in Revelation 12, and a great sign, that's the Greek word Simeon, appeared in heaven. Behold, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and upon her head 12 stars, and she was with child. And she cried out, being in pain, to give birth. And another sign, Simeon, was seen in heaven. And behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns upon his head, seven diadems. So we're going to run into here a woman clothed with the sun and the moon and the twelve stars. We're going to run into a dragon. And we're going to run into a man, a man-child who is going to rule the nations with a rod of iron, who is caught up to God in his throne. Now, all of these symbols refer to something. The dragon refers to something. The woman clothed with the sun and the moon and the twelve stars refers to something. And the man, the man-child with the rod of iron who will rule the nations with an iron scepter, who's caught up to God in his throne, refers to something also. But we know that these three entities are symbols because of that word sign there. The moment you see that word sign, you're thinking, okay, this is not connotative language, but this is denotative language. And I'm not, I'm not given permission to make that mental shift as an interpreter unless I see something in the text telling me That's what's being communicated. And the overt clue that I see here is this word sign. Look also, if you could, at Revelation chapter 8, verse 8. Here's something else you look for. You look for the words like or as. Because that's a well-known figure of speech called a simile. Revelation 8, verse 8, it says, The second angel sounded, and something like a great mountain, burning with fire, was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. So what is that? Um, is it a literal mountain on fire falling into the sea? Well, that's not what John says. It says it was like that. It was something like it. So the word like or as tells us that John is equating two things together in a very well-known figure of speech called a simile. So you're thinking, okay, this is not denotative language, this is connotative language. Another clue you look for is Old Testament correspondence. Look at Revelation 13 and look at verse 2 just for a minute. It says, the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion, and the dragon gave him power and his throne and great authority. So you run into these animals. We've got a leopard. Uh, What else do we have here? A lion, and we've got a bear. Kind of sounds like Dorothy and the Wizard of Oz a little bit. So what do you do with that? I mean, do you look at that and say, gosh, there's going to be these actual animals in the last days that are going to be just like the animals that I saw last weekend at the Houston Zoo? 
No, that's a interpretation that's not understanding that this is clearly not denotative language, but connotative language. Well, how do I know that? Because I know the book of Daniel, right? The book of Daniel, chapter 7, has already told us, even before we get to the book of Revelation, that the lion equals Babylon. The bear equals Medo-Persia. The leopard equals Greece. So whoever this future beast is, he's like a a composite. He's an amalgamation of everything that was wicked in those prior literal governmental empires. Well, how do I know that these animals represent literal governmental empires? Because I'm already informed by the book of Daniel as to what the meaning of these animals are, even before I get to the book of Revelation. The better you know the rest of the Bible, the better you'll understand the book of Revelation. The better you know the Old Testament, the better you'll understand the book of Revelation because only a reader of the Old Testament could make this recognition. If you're coming into the book of Revelation with no knowledge of what God has revealed prior and you really have no knowledge of Daniel 7, you're going to look at these beasts and you're not, you're, you're, you're going, to, you're not going to understand exactly what to do with them. But when you understand that the referent behind each of these animals has already been identified by Daniel back in the 6th century, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and you see a repetition of those same animals in Revelation 13, you know that what is being expressed here is not literal language, but figurative language. So look for the word spiritually, look for the word sign, look for the word like or as, look for Old Testament correspondence, and then look for contextual interpretations. So in Revelation 17, there's a harlot riding on a beast. And obviously that's exactly what it looked like, right? Because that's an internet picture, so it's got to be true. But there's a harlot dominating a beast. And you wouldn't believe the ink that's spilled by people talking about this harlot, giving you all kinds of interpretations about who the harlot is. And all you have to do to figure out who the harlot is, is to pay attention to how the Holy Spirit interprets the harlot. So when you go to the very last verse in the chapter, it says, the woman that you saw the woman being the harlot or the prostitute. The woman that you saw is the great, what? City. The Greek word is polis. As in, you know, we use metropolis, city. The woman that you saw is a great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. So when I study the harlot, I'm not given permission to just come up with any crazy interpretation I want to that comes out of my unsanctified imagination. Any more than if I'm using MAPSCO, I can't get upset at MAPSCO if I don't follow the directions that MAPSCO is giving me. And I'm not a biggest fan of MAPSCO either. I've followed their directions and gotten extremely lost, so I'm just speaking in generalities. But, you know, it's like 
Everybody wants to know who the harlot is, but no one wants to pay attention to the last verse who tells you who the harlot is. In fact, there's a very well-known preacher. Um, He wrote a commentary on the book of Revelation. And when you read what he says about Revelation 17, he comments on every single verse in the chapter. And then you get to verse 18, which is like the most important verse. Because that's how the harlot is defined. The page just runs blank. There's no commentary in verse 18. There's no recitation of verse 18. It's almost like a mental block. And you wonder how a guy who has studied the Bible with such vigor and is proclaiming it all over the world could get it so fundamentally wrong by simply neglecting what God himself says, who the harlot is. So when you see language like this, language of interpretation, as I call it, contextual interpretations, that tells you that the harlot is obviously not denotative language, but connotative language. The harlot represents something. And then the last thing you look for is you look for absurdity. When you try to interpret it literally... It just wouldn't make any sense. So back to Revelation chapter 12 and verse 1. It says, And a great sign, Simeon, appeared in heaven. So there's your first clue that we're dealing with figurative talk because of the word sign. But then it talks about a woman clothed in the sun and the moon under her feet. Well, I mean, is a woman actually clothed in the sun? That would be crazy. She would burn to death, wouldn't she? So obviously, if a literal interpretation yields such a crazy result, that's your clue that, hey, this is not meant to be understood. At a denotative, plain, literal level, this is meant to be understood at a connotative, figurative level. I mean, you do do this anyway in other parts of the Bible. It's like when at the end of John's Gospel, John says, you know, I think this is in John 20 or 21, right at the end. He goes, you know, if if I told you everything else that Jesus said or did, the world itself couldn't contain the books written thereof. So do I take that to mean that if John wrote everything down that Jesus said, that the whole world would be filled with books, well, that would be crazy. Uh, That's an interpretation that doesn't make sense literally. So I would take that figuratively that John is just exaggerating. Um, He's given a hyperbole to communicate a point. You know, I'm so hungry I could eat a horse. Or, you know, the person that says, my girlfriend broke up with me. The world is coming to an end. Well, is the world really coming to an end? Well, to that person, it feels like it. Because they're using a hyperbole. And all John is doing at the end of the book of Revelation is he's using a hyperbole. He's just trying to say, Jesus did a lot of other stuff I could have told you about. And I reached that conclusion because it wouldn't make sense for the entire world to be filled up with books. So that's what you do in the book of Revelation. You just kind of look for things that are patently absurd if interpreted literally. And that's your clue that it's meant to be understood 
figuratively. So, with all of that being said, you got your rules down here? Interpret spirit, uh, the word spiritually is figurative language. The word sign is figurative language. The expression like or as is figurative language. Old Testament correspondence is figurative language. Contextual interpretations is figurative language. And absurdity is figurative language. So with the rules in place, let's take it out for a little test drive. How, once we identify what the symbols are in the book of Revelation, how do we pour the right meaning into the symbol? So I'm not teaching you here how to identify the symbols. I already gave you six rules for that. What I'm teaching you here is step B, step two, that once you figure out what a symbol is, Here is how you figure out the referent behind the symbol. Here is how you figure out what the symbol refers to. And people, by and large, don't follow these rules because they believe that any interpretation they come up with out of their sanctified imagination is is a valid interpretation. I mean, there are some insane, crazy interpretations of the book of Revelation floating around today, maybe they've always been around, and I'm just now more aware of them because of our social media world that we're living in. But people are saying these just crazy things about the book of Revelation. And the reason they're saying crazy things is is they've never really sat through a type of study that I'm giving you right here on how to interpret the symbols. And once you identify the symbol, here's how you figure out what it means. So what are the rules? Rule number one is you look for language of comparison. Go back to Revelation 8, verse 8, if you could. The second angel sounded, and something like, so what kind of figure of speech is this? A simile. Something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. So I'm looking there and I'm seeing that word like or as. And I'm understanding, okay, this is not denotative talk. This is connotative talk. The word like or as tells me. Once I figure out that this is a symbol of something, I have to figure out a way to figure out what the symbol means. And the words like or as are used by John, the revelator, over and over and over and over and over again in the book of Revelation. And the reason he keeps using that phrase is he doesn't know exactly how to describe it. He, ha- he has, you got to put yourself in, in John's shoes. I mean, this is a tough job. You're about ready to die. You're incarcerated out on an island somewhere off the coast of the Asia Minor there in the Aegean Sea area. And you think your life is over and you're marooned there, which is what Domitian, the empire emperor of that time, did to troublemakers. And all of a sudden Jesus shows up on your island. And the, the portrait that he sees of Jesus is not what he remembered 60 years earlier when he leaned against the chest of Christ in the upper room. This is Jesus in his glorified state. And John is so 
shaken by this, that he falls down as if he's dead, Jesus touches John, comforts him, and then gives him a job. And what's his job? I'm going to show you a vision, and I want you to write down exactly what you see. That's, that's the job. That's the job description. Yeah, but Lord, I already wrote the Gospel of John for you. And I already wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Do you want me to write it the exact same way I wrote those other books? No, John, because when you wrote those other books, you had time to remember my ministry. Remember what the promise of the Spirit is? The Spirit will come and bring all things to your remembrance. So John had time to kind of, I don't know, relax, I would think, to some extent, and write down through deliberate remembrance and mental processes what it was like to walk with Jesus 60 years earlier. And now Jesus says to John, now we're going to do something a little different. I'm going to show you a vision. It's like, it's like watching a movie. And your job is to write down everything that you see. So how would you do that? Um, <laughs> you see... Um, a nuclear bomb going off, let's say. How, how would you describe that with first century vocabulary? Well, you would say it's like. Or it's as. It, it's like taking, let's say you could take Benjamin Franklin, one of the smartest people that's ever lived. And you bring him back from the 17th century. And you put him into Hobby International Airport. And he's hearing something over the loudspeaker. He has no idea how to describe it. And so he would say it's like, you know, he would be dialing into his own vocabulary to communicate what he's seeing since he has no ability to um, articulate in 21st century terms what he's seeing. Um, He sees a plane take off and land. How would Benjamin Franklin describe that? He would say it's like a... Whatever. Um, you look over and someone's on their iPad, you know, looking at the United app and trying to figure out if their flight's on time. And how would Benjamin Franklin describe that? I mean, how would he describe the Internet? How would he describe anything that he's seeing in this airport? He would say it's like, it's like, it's like. And that's why John has to keep saying this because of the assignment that Jesus gave him. Write it down. He's totally left to his own devices in terms of how to explain what he's seeing. And so that's how to understand this sort of language of comparison. John, It's like John is struggling in his finiteness to describe what he's seeing, but he has limited vocabulary to do it. So he keeps saying it looked like or it sounded like. So that's one way to understand these type of figurative um, expressions. The last two rules are you search the context. And if that doesn't work, you search the remote context. And by remote context, I mean the Old Testament. So the book of Revelation in rule number two here identifies what the symbol means, according to John Walvoord, 26 times. 
So notice Revelation 12. You see the dragon there? Verse 3. Then another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon. How would you understand the dragon? You know it's a symbol because of the word Simeon. How would you understand who the dragon is? Well, look at the immediate context is rule number two. Look at verse 9. And the great red dragon, that's the same character, was thrown down the serpent of old who is called the devil and Satan. Who deceives the whole world? So when you see the dragon in Revelation 12 verse 3 and you know it's a sign or a symbol, you don't just put your own meaning into that. You follow what the text says about the symbol and the text itself in the same context tells you exactly who the dragon is. The dragon is the devil. So the dragon, a symbol, refers to Satan in Revelation chapter 12 verse 3. Look over at Revelation 20, verse 2 for a second. And he laid hold of the dragon. That's our same character, right? The serpent of old, who is the devil, and Satan. So that's how I can test whether I've got dragon right. Or is my dragon interpretation dragon, so to speak? Um, how do I know I've got the dragon correct? Well, verse 9 tells me who the dragon is. It's the devil. And then subsequently in the same book, it tells me exactly who the dragon is. It's the devil. And there are 26 times in the book of Revelation where this happens. Symbol, here's the interpretation. And very, very sadly, most people are not patient enough to read the rest of the chapter. Because they want to rush in with whatever they think it means. When all you have to do is keep watching how the Holy Spirit, the author, identifies the referent behind the symbol. So you're reading Revelation chapter 12 and you're saying your rules aren't working because there's this woman clothed with the sun and the moon and the 12 stars. There's nothing in the context that tells me who the woman is. There's nothing in the rest of the book of Revelation that tells me who the woman is. How in the world do I figure out who the woman is? Now is where you start searching the remote context, particularly the Old Testament. Because the book of Revelation has within it 404 verses. 278 of the 404 verses are allusions to the Old Testament. Now, this is a very powerful fact to learn. The book of Revelation has within it no Old Testament quotes verbatim. But it does have, in 278 of 404 verses, references or allusions. It may not be a direct quote, but it's alluding back to the Old Testament. So here is this woman clothed with the sun and the moon and the 12 stars. And how do I interpret who this woman is? Well, this is where your knowledge of the book of Genesis pays dividends. Because in the book of Genesis, young Joseph had a dream, didn't he, when he was 17? 
And he narrated it to his father and his brothers who weren't real happy about the dream. (laughs) And it says, now he still had another dream and related it to his brothers and said, lo, I have had another dream. Now watch this as Joseph is describing the dream. Behold, the sun, does that sound familiar? The moon and the 11 stars. Now here it mentions 11 and not 12 because Joseph, the 12th, is narrating what he saw when he was 17 years old. I saw the sun and the moon and the 11 stars bowing down to me, the 12th star. And he said, Dad, what do you think about my dream? And the dad said, you stupid 17-year-old kid. And he starts to rebuke Joseph, who I think just had the dream and wanted to talk about it. It says in Genesis 37, verse 10, and in the process of the rebuke, Jacob, dad, interprets who the sun and the moon and the 12 stars are. So you no longer have to guess when you read the same referent in the book of Revelation who the sun and the moon and the 12 stars are. He, that's Joseph, related it to his father and to his brothers. And his father rebuked him and said to him, what is this dream that you have had? That's the rebuke. And in the process of the rebuke, here comes the interpretation. Shall I, that's the sun, and your mother, that's the moon, and your brothers, that's the 12 tribes, in this case, 11 tribes, bowing down to Joseph, the 12th tribe, because the 12 tribes came from Jacob's dozen, Jacob's sons. So the 11 stars would represent Joseph's brothers, Joseph being the 12th star. So you notice that I'm not guessing anything as to what this means. I'm just following some simple Bible study rules. Shall I and your mother and your brothers actually come to bow ourselves down before you to the ground? And it's a prophecy that the Holy Spirit gave Joseph when he was 17 that wasn't fulfilled until age 30. When he, through the providence of God, was elevated to second in command in Egypt. And his brothers and father left Canaan, Genesis 46, to come to Egypt to receive relief in the midst of famine. That's what that dream is about. But you'll notice that the imagery is identified right there in Genesis 37, verse 10. And so when I see the identical imagery in the book of Revelation, particularly verse 1, and a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed in the sun and the moon, under her feet and upon her head a crown of 12 stars. When I see that, I'm a a good student of God's word, and I say that rings a bell from what I've read in the book of Genesis. Do, Do you see why I'm a little bit on edge about what I said earlier concerning young earth creationism and why their current trajectory is to elevate one part of God's word and make it sound like the end of God's word is not as clear. You can, you can see very clearly how that violates the principles that the Holy Spirit has given. 
because the key to understanding the book of Revelation is the book of Genesis. The key to understanding the book of Genesis is the book of Revelation. The two are inextricably linked. That's what Henry Morris and John Whitcomb understood. This is what the current generation, not every single one of them, but many in the Young Earth Movement do not understand. And from from where I stand as a Bible teacher that wants to teach the whole Bible and doesn't want to just teach Genesis, but I want to teach Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, right on through the book of Revelation, I don't want to have a ministry that focuses on a single issue. I want to teach all, all of God's word. You can see why their approach is problematic, because it's putting a schism in God's word that God did not put there. So you cannot understand what this, who this woman is without Genesis 37, verses 9 and 10. <clears throat> How about this other character here, the son? S-O-N. Who do you think that is? Be brave. It's the Messiah. Why? Because he's going to rule the nations with a rod of iron. Hey, that's Psalm 2, verse 9. That's what the Messiah is going to do one day. He's going to rule the nations with a rod of iron. And he is caught up to God and his throne. What does that remind you of? The book of Acts, chapter 1, verse 9, which is the ascension of Jesus Christ. So you notice what I've done here? We've just looked at the most symbolic chapter in the most symbolic book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. The most symbolic chapter in the most symbolic book is Revelation chapter 12. And I've shown you through basic Bible study method how you can understand what a symbol is and how you can identify the symbol just by following basic rules. The steps are a little bit more complicated than you would find in Romans or Galatians, but it's the exact same method of interpretation at the end of the day. So the sun is Jacob, the moon is Leah, because Rachel died, I think, in Genesis 35, and Jacob had two wives. Not that that's a good thing, necessarily, but that's just how it worked out in Jacob's life. And then the 11 stars are Joseph's brother. Joseph is the 12th star. And so the sun and the moon and the 12 stars is the patriarch and the matriarch of the nation of Israel and the 12 stars, sun, moon, matriarch, patriarch of Israel, 12 stars equal the 12 tribes. So the woman clothed with the sun and the moon and the 12 stars is Israel. So what is going on in Revelation 12, verse 3, is the dragon, who's the dragon? Satan. Is standing in front of the woman. Who's the woman? Israel. And he's about to gobble up the child who was caught up to God in his throne and who will rule the nations with a rod of iron. Who's the child? Jesus. What is that? 
That's Christmas. That is the spiritual explanation as to what was happening in the spiritual realm, which is very real, when Jesus was born into our world. You say, well, wait a minute. I thought it was just about Herod getting jealous over his own throne and killing all of these kids. There's more to it than that. Matthew 2 gives you the story from the physical realm. Revelation 12 gives you the identical story from the spiritual realm, which is very real because we wrestle not against flesh and blood. Revelation 12, if you didn't have it in your Bible, you would not understand what the devil was doing to stop the birth of Christ. And in fact, this is not the only time the devil tried to stop the birth of Christ. He tried to do it six other times. And when you understand the full court press that Satan put on, beginning in Genesis 3 verse 15, to stop the birth of Jesus, then you start understanding why Christmas is so special. Christmas should not have happened. Yet God providentially worked in human history in circumstances where, quite frankly, from the human perspective, it looked like Satan was winning. God worked seven times in human history to prevent Satan from having his way so Jesus could be born. The the birth of Christ, from this standpoint, was an absolute miracle and should not have happened. And you might be saying to yourself, well, can you describe those seven attacks? And look at this. We're going to do that in the next hour. So look at this foundation that you guys have. Everybody else is going to be sitting here saying, what is he talking about? But well, this ends the rapture series, and it's a nice segue into... Uh, the sermon that's coming. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for Christmas and help us to be mindful of the not just the work that you did in getting us the Messiah, but the work that you overcame in terms of the prince and power of the air seeking to stop everything that you were doing. And help us as we leave here today to grow in appreciation for what we just celebrated Yesterday, the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. We'll be careful to give you all the praise and the glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. We're probably going to do a Middle East meltdown beginning next Sunday school lesson. Ezekiel, so read Ezekiel 36 through 39 if you could.